on this episode of What's Mine is Yours, Jeff Trot. Cheryl calls him and says, I'm working on this record and it's just really missing you. Can we write something? Of course we can. I got nothing. She had moved to New York and she said, come out, let's give it a try. If nothing happens, I think I have a whole record. Headed to the airport is like pouring rain. Hop on the plane, soaking wet. I am sitting there going, I don't have anything for her. It's sunny there. I'm going to get some sun in New York. Soaking wet in my plane seat, going to New York to soak up the sun. I started thinking like Beach Boys and all this stuff. And I come up with this melody and a chorus for Soak Up the Sun. Wrote some lyrics and stuff. Mostly the chorus. Didn't really have any substantial verse things, but I've got a hook, I think. I had to carry this thing for five hours. Land, get a ride into town, go to Cheryl's house. Hey, big hug. Okay, well, yeah, what do you have any ideas? Blurted it. I have a chorus idea in my mind. Play it for me. She hands me guitar. I'm hunting around on the E string looking for it. You never played it yet. It's just in your head. I've got the melody. You know, I'm gonna soak up the sun. And I just started playing this thing. And she's sitting there and she goes, like, I don't know. It kind of sounds like something my brother might like. And I was like, oh, okay, that's the kiss of death. So we just started throwing all these images and stuff. We really combed it together and got it going. It's kind of unexplainable. And I've never had that with really anybody else. Good morning. Morning. There's some coffee behind me. Great. Just what I need. What do you want to write today? I did have this one idea. Have you ever heard a song and felt like it was yours? That it was written for you? Me too. And that's why I moved to Nashville, Tennessee to record and sing songs written by people who have written songs you've heard. The songs you have grown to love. The songs you were raised on. And the songs that you've attached your stories to. Come along with me as I interview songwriters who write the words that inspire all of us. This is What's Mine is Yours. Our guest today is Jeff Trott. Jeff was born and raised in Northern California. Jeff performed in bands on the West Coast before meeting and most notably known for his hit songs with Sheryl Crow. Jeff not only is an acclaimed songwriter, but also produces. He has written songs for artists such as Sheryl Crow, Kobe Calais, Jason Mraz, Brandy Clark, and Michelle Branch. Jeff is now producing Sarah Evans' next record in Nashville, Tennessee. Jeff, I believe, was my first guest that didn't get his start in quote-unquote country music. I am here in Nashville, and the start of this podcast was obviously going to be country music songwriting, and then I really decided that I have wanted to branch out into just songwriters in general. I think a lot of them are going to have very similar shared experiences, and I also find very intriguing and interesting the differences between, say, New York, Los Angeles, and Nashville when it comes to the songwriting community. I love that Jeff was from Northern California and the Bay Area, which is very close to where I'm from. Being able to share that helps so much when you have someone you've never met sit in your living room and you're talking. And when you have something that you can share from the get-go, I think eases into comfortability. I think people don't realize that when it comes to this podcast, most of these people I've never met before, 
And by the way, this is my first podcast. I have now done many episodes, but this is still relatively new to me. So I'm still kind of figuring out the ebb and flows of what works, what doesn't. It's nice when you kind of already have a commonality with a guest right off the bat. Plus, a lot of his influences and things he's done in his career have been rock and pop influenced. And that's very similar to me and my upbringing and what I listened to and what my parents listened to. Country was really something that I found on my own. My mom listened to some things, but really my household wasn't very country driven. So we also shared that. Well, good morning, Jeff Trot. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Not too bad. <laughs> like I'm feeling great. I've gotten a little bit of the autumn spirit. I feel yes. like it's cooling down here and feeling good. It's beautiful in Nashville. It's really great uh, here. Yeah. You are also from the West Coast, right? I am. Grew up in the Bay Area and then spent a lot of time in San Francisco. I was just there this last weekend. So I'm from Sacramento. Oh. And I went to college actually in the Bay Area. So that's really cool because, I mean, I love the West Coast. Do you still get out there very often? Yeah, my family's still there. My sister actually lives in San Francisco in the Mission District. Okay. And my parents are in Belmont, which is about 30 minutes south. So I get out there. We were just there in July celebrating my dad's birthday. So I go out there at least once a year. Yeah. And then funny you should say Sacramento because my wife is from Roseville. Tell me about growing up. Tell me about your mom. Tell me about your dad. So all of the big interstates that you see, 280 and 880 and all those, my dad worked on those. And he was a uh, mechanic that worked on all the big tractors, the earth movers, whatever they were called. And he did that for a long time. And his music was always like early 60s and 50s music. Mm -hmm. He had a soft spot for Creedence Clearwater. Okay. And my mom has always been into like rock and roll since she was young in the 50s and all that stuff has always followed it. In fact, she knows a lot of the new bands that are out now. So she keeps current. Yeah. But neither one of them sing or play music. So I'm sort of like the anomaly of the family. I'm the only one that sort of does. For a career. For a career, you know, which I wasn't originally even going to be a professional musician. What were you going to be? I went to school majoring in telecommunications and I was going to be a broadcaster. And um, my sister does. And went two years to college to learn how to build antennas and maybe be a station manager or something. Or I don't have like the big voice for broadcasting. While I was in school, another student friend of mine and I built a small illegal (laughs) ham radio station that had one watt of power. So it could reach maybe like a mile radius or something like that. It kind of helped us learn what you had to learn how to do. Was that actually a job for you for a while or was it for fun? It was for fun. It was just in my friend's house and we both went to the same class. The teacher was really happy that we were doing all this stuff. And then one day we were setting up to do a show and we got busted by the FCC and they shut us down and they made us like take the antenna down and Really? That was the end of that broadcasting thing. 
But during that time period, I was playing in little art bands mm -hmm. and there was this band called the lifers it was all film students and me and we just played at like punk rock places like the mabuhe gardens in san francisco and there was a place called off broadway and the stone we would set up a big sheet on the stage okay. behind us and then the bass player michael stevenson his sister was also a film student at the art institute and so we would make these scratch films, like we would take Super 8 foot films and with like knives and stuff like that, we would chop up the film mm -hmm. and then that would be our lighting. That's really cool. And so I did that for a little bit. We did put out a couple of records and then somebody from another band saw us playing and their guitar player had quit the band. And so he came up to me and said, hey would you be interested in playing with us? You know, I played bass in this like drag queen band called the Wasp Women. And that led to playing with this band called Wire Train. And shortly after I was in that band, we got a major record deal. I was in my early 20s. This was in San Francisco. And that turned into, from there, mid-80s on out, I played with this band, Wire Train. We put out, I don't know, maybe four or five records. It was all like indie rock. Sure. Some people compared us to U2 and that kind of stuff. And that took me all over the world. Wow. We ended up doing a lot of stuff in Europe and the UK because we opened up for this band called the Water Boys, a British band that kind of rootsy with fiddle and all mm -hmm. this stuff. The very last show we played in London at the Hammersmith Odeon, that band asked me to come up and play their encore, which was their sort of bluegrassy version of Purple Rain. Okay. And so I got to play the guitar solo in that. And Amazing. That, and that was fun. And that led to a former member of the Water Boys started his project of his called world party and he asked me if i wanted to record with him he said i love your guitar playing i feel like you'd be perfect for what i'm trying to do and i was thinking like i've got my band we're signed i'm not gonna go off and do that so i passed on playing on this record and it became like this cult indie favorite after he put out that first record my band was close to getting dropped from the okay. label we were on some major label. We were on like Columbia oh, wow. Records and we were on MCA as well. And we weren't getting along. We were all friends, but we didn't agree on what kind of music we should play. Jeff, were you the drink. diva? No, no, not really. Not no. I wish I was. The singer was the diva. If you're playing in a band and all that, there's a little bit of that in everybody. But Sometimes it just runs its course too. I mean, that yeah. can happen. This guy reapproached me when he was ready to do a second record and so i spent maybe a good six months commuting to london like every month wow and play and that's a lot yeah that's a lot this guy carl wallinger he had the studio at the top floor of this building that was a major rehearsal place kind of like an sir type of thing would see like chrissy hind was walking around and then 
Sinead O'Connor and all these people who I met through this band. So I played with this World Party band and got to play on the second record called Goodbye Jumbo. Were you writing music for the band as well at the time? I learned how to write songs with Wire Train. We all chipped in and helped. And I had been already doing a little bit of writing. How long were you guys together? I was together with them for a year. And it didn't make any sense. Plus, Wire Train was reforming and they were getting a new record deal. And they said, please come back. And so I thought, okay, well, I won't have any visa problems there. So I ended up going back. We did one album and this producer, Bill Betrell, produced one of our last records called No Soul, No Strain. He was the connection to Cheryl Crow for me. So. He produced our band on the early 90s, this last record. Shortly after that, Wire Train folded again. Wire Train just cannot stay together. I had no work and, and I was living in this crappy apartment in Silver Lake. And These are big life transitions. Yeah. Over the time. Yeah, it's weird. It seemed like more time passed than really actually happened. Than, a lot happened in thought. a short amount of time. Short amount of time, yeah. like you said. So I was without any employment and all this stuff. Which is scary. Yeah. I mean, I'm living on my own. I didn't really know that many people in L.A. And L.A., if you are alone, is really alone. I was about to just say even more lonely. You feel like you're on a deserted island or something like that, even though there's like seven or eight million people there. People are so on the move. People aren't as friendly as they are here in Nashville. You you don't even talk to your neighbor. You You don't avoid your neighbors. Since you are a California native, Northern and Southern California are like different world. The people are different. Everything's different. How would you say being from California has affected or shaped you as a musician and your songwriting style? There are people from all over the world that live In San Francisco. It's very culturally diverse. Very diverse. And that brings a melting pot of literature, food, art, and that's what makes it so culturally rich. I was really blessed being able to have a broad point of view and on all sides. Absolutely. And I think being raised in California, I'm very thankful that I was given the broad spectrum, being exposed to almost everything. So it helped me quite a bit. And then even moving here, I feel very blessed to have that much diversity in my life that nothing really shocks me or gets me all riled up. Growing up in Northern California, everyone was willing to have conversations about all things. I didn't feel like it was too shut off. Nothing was off limits. That's what felt pretty nice. It's unfortunate how divided we've all Mm. become, and it's important to understand everybody, no matter what. Even people that are like bullies. It always goes back to something. It always goes back to somebody wasn't loved or, you know, somebody was bullied, too, and it's just carried on. So That's the thing that's great about music, too, is it speaks to every facet of life. And there is a song out there for everyone who's going through something. Yeah. What would you say is a moment? in time of your life that you can remember that music changed your life? 
I was 15 or 16. I had this very good friend named Michael Harrington, who we did a lot of stuff together growing up in the suburbs, getting into some trouble. Michael had this older cousin. She might have been in college or something like that. And she was at Michael's house and she was like, hey, you guys, have you ever been to a concert before? Mm -hmm. And we're like, no, we're too young. Mom won't let me go up to San Francisco and see a concert. So she said, look, I'm going to take you to your first concert. She was very together and she was on Michael's mom's good side. And so they agreed to let us go with this cousin up to Oakland to see Earth, Wind and Fire. Okay. And that kind of changed my life because wow. I was like, holy cow. I mean, the costumes, the dancing, the music. I was like more of a rocker before that. And I got to see my first concert. All I could think of is like, holy cow. These guys are doing it at all. They sound amazing. This music is so incredible. It makes my body move around. I can't help it. I feel like I'm having a, a spaz yeah. attack. And I had never listened to anything like that before. And so it made a big impression on me. And then after that, I couldn't get enough of all that 70s funk. And I kind of dove into all the soul music and all that. Thanks to this cousin who I can't remember her name, but it doesn't matter. I guess she did <laughs> be a service of broadening my scope. So I've always had like a really soft spot for that kind of like 70s soul and R&B music and even some jazz as well. Herbie Hancock mm. is like a big influence too. John Coltrane, I have virtually everything he's ever done. So I listen to a lot of Coltrane. As a songwriter, what would you say at the very beginning was your approach to that becoming your career? This is something that I'm sure other people have come across. I wasn't a very good musician. It was easy for me to get into punk because it didn't matter if you were any good. You just had to be spirited, make a lot of noise, jump around and do all this stuff. I never took any lessons other than a introduction to guitar class in high school. So that got me playing. And then I started playing cover bands and this and that led to the punk thing where we were creating original music. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about that is if I create the music, then I know how to play it. If I make my own songs, mm. then I'm the best at playing that song than anybody sure. else. So that got me into like, oh, I'm going to do this. And that led to getting in bands and being a co-writer or primary writer in some cases. And I've really enjoyed doing that. I eventually became a session guitar player and then I just developed a certain style. But a lot of it, I would just play what I think should come there. So sure. it still was kind of creating as well, but played in so many bands and that kind of gave me this sort of melting pot of musical tools. Breaking into the music industry, would you still take that similar approach if you were starting out today? The one thing that I hear a lot of people say is, oh, I'm not good enough to write my own song. Mm -hmm. I, and I'm like, do you know how to write a letter? If you know how to write a letter, you can write a song. Yeah. I mean, you just have to put pen to paper or Gotta get started. start typing. 
well, how do you know how to put it into a song? Words are kind of melodic as it is. If you're reading them on the paper, there's some authors that have a very rhythmical style of putting words together. It's kind of similar. Just And then if the phrase or sentence has too many words, mm-hmm. take them out. You can edit it. Yeah, edit it. Take out the ands and thes and the buts and all that stuff and just turn it into a poem. I think a lot of really great songwriters, like a Stevie Nicks, she just kept a journal and just wrote poetry and depending on her mood, and she would write that down and had a whole collection. I started doing that as well. I read this book called The Artist's Way. Okay. This woman explains how to be a writer. Mm-hmm. It had these suggested exercises. The exercise was very simple. It said, Fill three pages of words. Okay. And they can be the same word over and over again, but you'll get bored of that. So just write whatever's on the top of your mind. And I was like, I was doing it. I was like, this is really stupid. Why am I doing this? And and then I would write that. Oh, well, what good is writing on three pages, filling up pages and wasting ink and all this stuff? And then the creativity started flowing through that. I realized that A lot of what people keep in their mind is a lot of fragments. And it becomes like a traffic jam of stuff, and it's hard to get a clear thought. So if you can get rid of all the fragments in your mind, then you can clear up your mind and be able to write about what you want to write. Sure. A lot of foreign languages have a musical sense. The last word will go up. And oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And so it has like this like melodic sense. Rather than have kind of a monotone like me, I would notice that people from Italy, they have all these little expressive melodic ways of speaking. And so you put all of that together. Like I said, you write a letter. If you can do that, that's a starting point. Yeah, starting point. Then edit that. Sure. And then keep going or and then you pick up other things like repetition is a good way to remember something. So, yeah, repeat a line. Cheryl Crow had we we had just finished this record called The Globe Sessions Mm -hmm. and we had spent about, I don't know, six months or seven months in New York. It took a long time to make this record, but we put everything into it. Like, I mean, just emotionally and towards the end of it, I was so ready to go home i'm like okay surely we are finished with the record we've got 20 songs that we recorded they're all great i'm ready to go home and so like on the last day in the studio cheryl comes up to me and says is there any chance you can stay for a little bit longer and i'm like what's a little bit longer? yeah what's a little bit longer and why i mean aren't we done i think we're i'm pretty certain that this record is finished how many more songs can you possibly need? No, it's not about the record. We're, we are done with the record. Stevie Nicks has asked me to produce a couple of songs for this movie soundtrack called Practical Magic. And I want to see if you like help me with that. And at first I was like, Oh, I, I didn't even think of like, Oh my God, you have this opportunity to work with the legend. I was like, I want to go home. I want to go, go see my girlfriend. I haven't seen her in a long time. She probably 
not there anymore. <laughs> you know, like she's already moved on. Yeah, and I was like, I was more concerned with going home. And I, I go, well, sure, I'm sure Stevie has, you know, guitar players and stuff like that. And she's like, oh, well, yeah, but you know, I feel like you need to be here. And so I thought it over, and I thought, okay, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll stay. I mean, my gosh, it's Stevie Nicks. Come sure. on. I said, well, you know. You almost said no. In fact, actually, I did say no. But she called me back in the middle of that. Okay, you're not going home. You got to, you have to stay here. And so she kind of talked me into it. She has a way of being able to get her way. So I'm like, all right, yeah, all right, I'll do it. Yeah, stupid. Yeah, of course, I want to meet her and this would be a good opportunity. So what she did was she kind of sweetened it up a little bit. And she said, why don't you co-produce it with me? And so I thought, okay, yeah, this is much better than just like going in and playing guitar on some tracks or whatever. Stevie gave us these two songs that were on cassette. One of them was, I think it was called If You Ever Did Believe. It was a really loose sketch. In fact, it just sounded like somebody playing an acoustic 12 string and just jamming on D. Okay. It just sounded like a... I don't want to say like hippie jam, but it was just kind of like this late night, like very loose demo. And then throwing out bits of poetry and all this stuff. I was listening to this and I'm like, Cheryl, there's not really a real song in there. What is it's like, well, let's just see if we can figure out some things. And I said, the only thing I can think of is maybe let's take this last line here and let's just repeat it twice. And then we've got a chorus, you know? And she was like, that sounds good, but I don't know if Stevie is going to go with that. She's probably pretty adamant of keeping her lyrics the way they are. And I said, well, I'm not changing any lyric. I'm mm-hmm. just like, just, just add one. Repeating it. Yeah. And so we got together with her and she goes, oh, that's a great idea. Okay. Yeah, sure. I could have asked for maybe some songwriting credit for suggesting <laughs> at doubling the line, but that's really a production. Sure. Anyway, so. I think it made it into more of a palatable song. And of course, she's just fantastic. And she's just so easy to be in the, like, there's no star trip at all. She's just like one of us. We're yeah. all the yeah, same. Yeah. We're all the same. She comes from that kind of thing, you know, has her family and mm-hmm. all that. There's no caste system or anything in her family or her life. She has her friends always with her. So we assembled this really fantastic band. We had this guy, Jerry Murata, who played on all the Peter Gabriel records. And he was playing drums. And Ben Montench from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Some of Stevie's guitar players were there. And and I can't even remember if I played anything, but I just was... And you almost went home. And I almost went home. Well, we got it all done. This is kind of an interesting thing to add. Being a singer, Cheryl really knows how to do vocals. So she was pretty much producing Stevie's vocals and all that. The thing is, working in the environment at the studio, there was a large control room. Okay. And normally in a control room, it was just the people that are doing the work. Engineer, producer, artist maybe some of the musicians and stuff like that. This room was filled with people. Really? And it was all of her friends in there, her girlfriends, 
boyfriends, you know, people sitting around and they were having a great time and they were smoking and having something to drink. And they, they, it was a party in there. And while we were trying to work, it was a little distracting. A little distracting. And I wasn't used to that because mainly when I worked in the studio, yeah, it would just be the people you know, doing the work or whatever and not really a communal thing. And I thought that was kind of cool. Uh-huh. I never, how are you going to say no to Stevie? I was just about to say, <laughs> when Stevie says that there's going to be more people there, you just kind of go with That's, it. That's, you know, you got to like suck it up and you have to work with that. And look what you're able to do. Sure. Was to have, what an incredible opportunity. Well, I know Cheryl and I really are like that. And we both feel that way. She doesn't like having a lot of people in the studio. Well, yeah, it's it's your art. It's your baby kind of thing. It's like, She didn't really care for it. But of course, she was being very friendly about it all. And at one point, she came up to me and she said, oh, I need a break from this. I'm going to go like, I don't know, go for a walk or do something. Decompress. Decompress. I go, is everything cool? Yeah, I just need a little bit of like, I need to, I need to, Take a little break and then come back to it and bring some good energy and all that. She goes, I'm getting like really tired and there's a lot going on in here and I can't think clearly. Mm-hmm. And I go, yeah, I need to. Can you work comping some of the vocals and all that stuff? And so, and normally that would be really be something she would do. And I think she did do some or probably most of it, but she had me give her a break. So I'm going through comping is you get several takes of a song, a singer doing a complete, in some cases they'll do complete takes on the song or they'll do sections. They'll just do the verses and all that stuff. I can't remember. I think we did like straight on through takes. And so we had many takes to choose from. And Steve is really good about like, okay, you have enough and, all that stuff. And this is in the time period where we're using tape and mm-hmm. all that stuff. So was it like Pro Tools or Logic where you can just go through your playlist? So usually what the producer and engineer do, you write out the different takes. You usually get a lyric sheet with the printed lyrics. And then next to the line, you'll write like take one, take two. So you might put a little start. Ooh, this is a really that good, was a good one. That was a good one. Three words out of this phrase are really good. A lot of circling and doing all this stuff. And so I had to finish up this comp. And I'm listening through with the engineer. And it's, okay, try three on this line on the verse. It sounds a little flat here. Oh, okay. But most of the tapes were great. But I was trying to find, like, the most character and sure. the most Stevie-like and best part. And so every... Once in a while, I'd have somebody come up and tap me on the shoulder. And I'm like, oh, what is this? And it was like maybe one of the backup singers was like, I think that other, that take seven was better than that three that you're choosing right now. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, let me listen to that again. And then an- another one would come That's over. That's too many chefs in the kitchen. And it'd be like, but I think, oh, the baby doll voice. You're not choosing the baby doll voice? After a while, it was just like, Okay. That's exhausting. You duly noted baby doll voice. And I just kind of carried on. I think even Stevie just said something like, let, you know, just let him do his job. Like, and she was defending me a little bit. So in the end, we got it all done. It 
turned out great. The movie was a success. A year later, I get a platinum record wow. in the mail from Stevie, which I thought was a nice and a nice little note. Absolutely. It was really a sweet touch. To finish his long story, after that, Cheryl was asked to produce a whole album for Stevie. Cheryl calls me up. Hey, can you help me out on this thing? <laughs> I go, okay, under one condition that the control room have just the people that are doing work. Stevie, of course, and anybody that's working or has anything to do yep. with it. And I was just helping her with a couple of songs. It wasn't like doing the whole album. Probably be better for Cheryl to do it anyways. And they didn't really necessarily need me. So I do all this work on the first day and nobody's in there. Mm -hmm. And not even Stevie's in there. Interesting. And so I just added a few things. And usually at the end of the day, I like to go into the lounge and uh, maybe have a beer or something to drink or something like that. So I pack up my stuff and I head down to the lounge in this studio. I open up the door, 30 people party raging. They were just waiting right out there. They all turned around and looked at me and it was like, have a nice evening. And I thought like, everybody's like, oh, there's that trot. What an Who's asshole. <laughs> Just trying to do your job. Just trying to do my job. Throughout your career, when would you say there was a moment where you felt like you stumbled and maybe mistakes made? All the time. All the and time. There wasn't one moment. I think when you're making complete albums, at times you're so deep into the music that you don't have any objectivity. Mm -hmm. You can't stand back and go, oh, this is what this is. Or in your mind, it was like, gosh, when I played that, it was like I was so in the pocket and all that. And maybe maybe the rest of the track wasn't all necessarily the best or something. A good example is Cheryl and I were working on her self-titled, sec her second album. I had contributed a lot to that as well, songwriting-wise. And Cheryl and I wrote a lot of songs on that together. But we were about three-quarters of the way through making that record. Originally, we had done most of the work in New Orleans at Kingsway Studios, which is Daniel Lanois' studio, which was crazy. Cheryl used to call it Dan's Lamps and Things because it was just a mishmash Things were just kind of loosely patched together. It was like a glorified home studio. Once we were almost done, we brought it back to L.A. to be home okay. and to put the finishing touches on stuff. And we were working on something. Cheryl got a phone call from Robbie Robertson, and Robbie was working on this movie called Phenomenon with John Travolta. Okay, He asked Cheryl if she had any songs that had like a good groove that he could put into this movie. So we were trying to go through everything. And since we were trying to put together the whole album, like enough tempo songs and slow songs, sure. and just the, like the whole concept of a record, Cheryl's like, I don't really want to give him anything off the record. Maybe we'll give him one of the extra songs. Yeah. You know, we were listening to a bunch and looking at lists. And I think we even had like a blackboard that had all the titles and 
stuff that we had to add to it. Okay, need to redo background vocals, need to do guitar solo. We're looking through the list, and I think it was Every Day is a Winding Road. We were both not happy with the song. Okay. We had overdone it. We put every kind of instrument. We had synths. We had, like, bongos. We had so much stuff that you couldn't hear the song. And so I never really liked it. I was like, gosh, that song is a stinker. People are going to, like, hurl stones at us and... It's a stinker. It's a stinker. And even though it wasn't really, but the track was terrible. Okay. And was definitely one like either we keep working on it or Or we just get rid of it. Sure. And we were at that phase where it's like, okay, this is close to having an 86 next to it. She said, well, why don't we send this one to him? It kind of grooved in a good way, Uh but then there were just too many instruments and... Like I said, the song never really emerged. So we sent a little bounce of that song to Robbie. Like the next day, he got back to Cheryl and said, hey, that's actually a pretty good song, but can you strip it down to just like vocal, guitar, bass, and drums? We kept adding to it, but we had never really like... Taken away. Because we didn't have a real producer or anything. We were just doing everything ourselves. And so we just went through the board and it's like okay let's mute everything except for what robbie's asking for uh-huh and we listen to it we go oh my god that is a really cool song wow it's no wonder we can't hear it because it's buried under i'm playing like ebo guitar in the corner and they, i'm trying to use like some weird loop and all this other things and it just was completely obscured by all you wouldn't have ever known that too unless and usually While you're working on stuff, a producer is doing all that and going like, oh, I wonder what it sounds like without any drums here. Or let's just take the bait, thinking of how it could be mixed. They're a step ahead of you. Well, we didn't have that. We were kind of doing it all. Yeah. And so, oh, well, it sounds like that. Wow. Okay, Robbie, now I know why that guy is so great. He just has a good sense. And we were really green at making records and stuff. We listened to that show. I was like, this is so good. I wish the bass moved a little bit more or something like that. Or doesn't it need something else? Then we start like, oh, maybe we need to add stuff going right back. Oh, back to what you were already doing. It was like, yeah, let's put it. I missed that, that little synth thing, but I wish it had a cooler sound. So we went into this studio next door that belonged to Chad Blake, who's like a great mixer he's done all the black keys stuff and he's really fabulous and he's mixed a lot of our big hits and everything so he said well come over to my studio and you can add stuff to it or whatever you just do your thing yeah and i went over and i saw this vintage mini moog synthesizer the crown jewel of synths and so i just started playing around with it and what was up Chad must have been using it for bass or something like that. And so I was like playing the bass line to Every Day is a Winding Road on this move, even though we were supposed to be looking for like this high part. And so I just started playing this really dumb riff, just dump, bump, 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 kind of funk going back to like Earth, Wind and Fire days or whatever. All of a sudden kind of did this rhythmical thing 
that made it come to life as well. And so we added that in there. The very, very last thing that we added to it was I, I had dabbled around with like a little slide part. There was no slide on it or anything okay. like that song is known for this little kind of slide thing. And so I'm like, I kind of miss that too. And we used to do that on the earlier versions. So we went back to this other studio and there were no amps. I just asked the engineer, I said, well, can you just plug my guitar directly into the board? And he's like, yeah, we can get this like cool Beatles sound. All right, great. He put so much compression on my guitar and compression is this thing that kind of squishes the sound, but it makes it have all the sustain and it's incredible effect. Even though in broadcasting, it was originally meant to like stop spikes in the volume and all that. And then it people started using it as an effect to get a certain sound. So it was way too much compression on my guitar. And I was like trying to get a sound and I was just like, whoa, whoa, this is like a rubber band thing. Like, wow, how cool is this? And so the engineer, this guy, Bob Salcedo, who had gotten the sound, he's like, just throw down one. And so he hit record and I just played this like, yeah, like rubber band slide. Woof, woof, woof. Then we were like, wow, this is so cool. I just did that like in one take. It was like, yeah, that'll be enough or whatever. Yeah. The signature slide thing that song is kind of known for, that just happened at the very end. That was the very wow. last thing that Happy happened. Happy accident. Happy accident, you know. Speaking of your relationship with Cheryl Crow, you guys have had, honestly, an immense amount of success with huge, massive songs you guys have done together. How did that relationship begin? If you scroll back to, was it 94? I think, or 93. It was it was during the making of her first record, which I wasn't really a part of. Okay. I didn't write anything on that. But I knew Cheryl while she was making that record because my girlfriend was working as an assistant at Bill Betrayal's studio. Okay. And she liked it, helped out whatever, got coffees or whatever, ran to the store, got beers. So... She would be telling me all, of, oh, there's this really great singer and all this stuff. Well, I got a phone call from Bill one day saying, hey, you've left so much gear in my studio. Aren't you ever going to come and pick it up? I'd be glad to keep it here because I'll use it, but you might want some of the stuff. Oh, wow. I'm sorry, Bill. I totally forgot that I had like two or three amps there and a bunch of guitars and I was living in a little apartment. So I really didn't really need that much. Mm. So I drove down to his studio, which was in Pasadena called Toad Hall. And it used to be this big like bank, looked like this temple or something like that. It was really cool. Marble floors and all this stuff, really just over the top. I get there and Bill introduces me to Cheryl. They were in the studio and they're just working together. Just the two of them were there. And it turns out Cheryl and I had a lot of friends in common, just chit-chatting and stuff. And then while I was collecting my gear and all that stuff, and I'm loading up my car, get the last piece and tell those guys, hey, have a great day and all that. And I go back out to my car. And I'm backing out and Cheryl comes running out and she goes, 
up to my passenger window and I roll it down and she's like, hey, is there any way you could come in and sing on this one song that we're doing? And I'm thinking, sing? You want you want me to sing on this? Yeah. Bill says you're a really great harmony vocalist. Huh. I'm like, I don't think of myself as a great harmony vocalist, but I'll come in here and I'll give it a try. Sure. So I did, and I it's the song called Can't Cry Anymore. And I'm like the band background vocals. It's just me at double, triple tracked, doing some harmonies. And I think Bill did some too. I think we shared a mic on a couple of the tracks. And it was really fun, and I really enjoyed it. And it was a really catchy song. And I was like, wow, this girl really has something going, you mm-hmm. know, and especially with Bill. So when we eventually did really work together mm-hmm. on our second record, she had me do a lot of the background vocals. So that's always been like one of the, okay, now you got to go do your vocals now. And so. That's a fun start. You guys almost had like an instant, a good connection, a good chemistry with each other. I can picture that moment. I see the back door of Bill's studio. Cheryl had this white Chevelle, like a vintage 60s Chevelle or something like that. I can just picture her running out like, I'm like, what is this? Wow. <laughs> like, Core memory. Yeah. That what really was kind of like started the catalyst all. for us working together. What I loved about having Jeff on the show was I've had plenty of guests that have written very notable songs, right? Songs that people know, love, cherish, will remember forever. This was really interesting because he, I believe, is the only guest as to where he has had two songs that, not that other people's songs on my show aren't standing the test of time, they absolutely are throughout history, but these songs really have transcended through generations, through TV, movie, the radio, songs that I still hear when I'm walking through Target, or if I turn on a rom-com, it comes on. So most notably is Sheryl Crow's If It Makes You Happy and Sheryl Crow's Soak Up the Sun. What a cool place in time he was in with Cheryl to have written those songs with her. They are songs that are just as popular today as they were then. You hear in the background of social media videos and movies and television. Not a lot of people with their music get to experience not only hearing it on the radio and it becoming a smash there, but being picked up throughout all of pop culture, which is really incredible. And I was talking about this with my producer of the show, that these songs were also in a moment in time which was really special for music. I know everyone's going to have their opinion on what they considered, you know, the greatest time period of music, but I really think there was something special happening in the 90s with music and especially pop music at that time. And I know some of these were considered rock per se, but I consider these kind of in the pop culture world in the 90s. And in the early 2000s, where going to the movies was more popular than ever, turning on TRL and turning on your TV with the music videos were more popular than ever. And going to your record store or Target or Walmart and to hold a physical copy of something was more popular than ever, something that we aren't ever going to get back because we have some say progressed. I disagree. But going so far into the digital world that a lot of these things we'll never see again. So he was able to have multiple songs with 
such a respected artist and it's going to hold a piece of history that's going to last forever. Two of the songs that stand out to me the most that I know that you co-wrote were If It Makes You Happy and Soak Up the Sun. And those have had a ton of lasting power in pop culture between movies, television, you name it. Can you share kind of brief two stories about writing those songs? Yeah. If It Makes You Happy is a song that I actually had before I worked with Cheryl, but it was really not ever completed. Okay. And where that came from, I've told this story about a zillion times, but I'll tell you because it's a kind of interesting. I moved to LA in the early nineties, like I had mentioned to you and was living in a little apartment in Silver Lake, was living with my girlfriend, freshly moved to LA and all that. And one day my girlfriend comes up to me and says, I cannot stand Los Angeles. I'm a small town girl. I can't live here anymore. It's not that I don't love you, but I just hate being in LA. And so what am I going to say? I mean, in my mind, I just moved to LA to really make a go at the music biz and try to strike into the music world. So it was like, it wasn't a breakup because of not getting along Mm -hmm. or anything like that. It was just like, I can't live here. And so she packed up her car and then we hugged and she drove off and I can still picture her little car like going over the hill and all that stuff. And I was just crushed. I mean, I was really in love with this girl. And for it to end like that, I just was like, wow, what? Maybe I did something wrong. What did I do? And then in my mind, I'm like trying to figure out what could I have done to keep her happy? Happy. So I go back into my apartment and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get rip roaring drunk. And I look, (laughs) there's nothing in the fridge. There's no beers or anything. Look in the cabinet. There's a bottle of cooking sherry. You and I polished it down. Stop. I just guzzle that thing down. Cooking sherry? Cooking oh, sherry. Oh, no. It's like drinking maple syrup. That's desperation. That was desperation. And I was just so crushed that, I mean, all I had to do is maybe go down to the liquor store. But I was thinking, like, no, I'm just going to polish that off and try to, like, keep myself from hurting so bad, even though I was <laughs> probably doing the opposite. But what I ended up doing in my little apartment, I had this acrosonic piano. It was a piano that somebody had given me smaller. It's like what grandma had in her living room kind of thing. I had that and it was just really beat up old piano, but I love playing that thing. And so I just sat down and I just started playing these chords and trying to come to grips on going to thrift stores and what what makes you happy okay buying things people immediately go and buy things because they think they'll that'll make them feel better and then i just started writing and this thing i didn't quite finish the song i had the chorus and i think the first verse or something like that about two or three o'clock in the morning i pass out Four o'clock in the morning, the biggest earthquake in L.A. history. Wow. Completely pulverized my apartment. My entire ceiling fell down. So not only was my heart crushed, 
Wow. <laughs> my face and every my body got crushed under all this plaster. So I was like underneath in this apartment that was an apartment building that was pretty much like it became condemned. Oh, yeah. I couldn't even get out of my apartment. The alarms in the neighborhood and people shouting and all this stuff going on four o'clock in complete darkness. And then my neighbor knocks on my door and said, hey, Jeff, are you okay? And I go, I think I'm beat up a little bit. So I like kind of barefooted walking over glass and all this stuff. I go to the front door and I go to open it. And it won't open because the whole building had sunk in. You were stuck. I, I was stuck. In L.A., all the apartments and houses have bars on the window. You can't climb out of your window. I was stuck in there. So fortunately, my neighbor, Sabrina, her boyfriend spent the night and he got like a pry bar. He pried open the door and I was able to get out. Wow. But I had remembered this song. Maybe a couple of years after that, I was writing a bunch of songs with Cheryl. Mm -hmm. We were up at this cabin in Yosemite at, with Brian McLeod, who played on her first record as a drummer. And we used his parents' cabin like a songwriting retreat, just us and an engineer. And we had some recording gear. So we came up with like, every day is a winding road, the, you know, the bones of that mm -hmm. song came up with the song, A Change Will Do You Good. And then Cheryl's like, anything you have or whatever. Yeah, I have this song called If It Makes You Happy. That you were sitting on for a while. That I had. Yeah. Yeah. And I play it for her and she was like, let me write a verse. And so she ended up writing this, I think it was Serve You Comics in Bed, Scrape the Mold Off the Bread and Serve You French Toast Again. Brilliant. I would have never come up with that. That's sure. not my style of writing, but the combination of it was so amazing. They married each other quite well. Yeah. I sang it and played it a little differently. And hearing her sing it, it was like, oh my God, this is a great song. Yeah. So we recorded that. And you knew you had something good. Yeah. You just kind of know. Yeah. And we sure had a lot of fun with it. And I have the initial idea of why that was even written. It was mm -hmm. like in a response to a breakup and stuff. But Cheryl totally was there as well. She was breaking up. She has a whole story of yeah her point of view of that song. So like you said, like it was a musical marriage. It came together. And not only was that a musical marriage, but we developed a very close friendship mm -hmm. and that pretty much was like the the sort of hey i got peanut butter i got chocolate yeah. hey let's make reese's or sure. whatever. it was kind of like that kind of a thing and that one really i think because that comes from a real place and it was a reaction i think people feel that in some ways the chorus comes and it's like this triumphant kind of thing and in a way, that's what songs do for people as they, for the writer or the artist, it's expressing this feeling and people can relate to it because it's not like an uncommon thing that happened. Absolutely. You know? That's why songs like that and, and songs that kind of do transcend time, music in general makes you feel like you're not alone. Yeah. 
someone might be putting those into words and, and recording them. But for the, the average everyday person who's not in the music industry, they turn to music to not feel alone. Yeah. It's communicating too. Mm -hmm. It's like how we talk. That's the beauty of music is as a communicator, it can be shoulder to cry on or it can be time to party and let's like, we need this so bad. It can express and it transcends all languages. And even if people hearing a song don't know what the words mean mm -hmm. or don't understand English or don't understand what it means. You too, even feel if it you, though still. You feel it. That's a powerful thing. And sometimes you realize when you have something like that, we definitely knew when we were recording at New Orleans, we'd take a break from the studio. We'd walk down Bourbon Street or, so, or just to kind of get a break from being inside. Yeah. And we would have neighbors like, we really love that song you y'all been playing for so long. And <laughs> we were like, oh, wow, they're hearing it and yeah. all this stuff. And it was like, hey, neighbor. And that is the best feeling, I swear. It, it just like, in your heart, it's really good, but you don't know if anybody else is going to feel don't. the same way that you feel. And when you get that sort of validation from somebody, oh, I heard that song, man, I can't get it out of my mind. Wow, it's great. Did you guys also feel that you had done something special with Soak Up the Sun? That one really has a different feeling to oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That and All I Want to Do might be Cheryl's least favorite song. Really? Yeah. But I have to tell the story of that one. An interesting thing that happened, too. It was like 2000 or something like that. I had moved to Portland, Oregon, and that was like the place to be. And I love being up in the Northwest. And Portland has a lot of cool, artsy type, mm -hmm. you know, people. And I felt like I fit in there. And I had spent a whole summer with Cheryl in L.A. This one summer, we worked on like 40 song ideas. None of them came to fruition. Mm. And she really didn't want me to write. She said, okay, this record, I'm writing all the lyrics. Just come up with good music. Okay, I'll do that. For whatever reason, she had kind of like a writer's block. Sure. I would come up with like some titles and stuff like that. Just we had this Maybe one. spark some inspiration. Yeah, of it. <laughs> like threw that in there. And I understand her. It's her name. So it's, yeah, okay. Well, you write all the lyrics. She's a great lyricist, by the way. I mean, she is on a different level than I am. I feel like I'm just lucky sometimes. Mm -hmm. So we spent this whole summer and I think she was like dating Owen Wilson or something at the time. And that was kind of tricky, <laughs> you know. I won't get too detailed with that one. I spent a lot of mornings with Owen in Cheryl's kitchen, drinking coffee and eating scrambled eggs. That's fun, uh, though. Yeah, That's a that fun was story. Kind of, he's pretty funny and all that stuff. But anyways, I think Cheryl really got along great with them. He makes everybody laugh and all that. But then sometimes you want to be real with people. Yeah. And maybe she didn't feel that I don't know. I don't, yeah, I can't really speak know. to her yeah. about that. But that summer was like a kind of bust. We got some cool ideas, but they just, I don't know. So I just kind of like, all right, well, I'm going to go back up to Portland. I had all these ideas and I ended up making my one and only solo record. And it is the weirdest record. 
<laughs> it's so psychedelic and crazy. And I just did all these things that I've wanted to do. And I sang all the songs. And I had a couple that ended up going on a couple of Cheryl yeah. records. Maybe that's something. I think that was on a Come On. I'm mixing it with this friend of mine in Hawaii. And Cheryl calls him and says, I'm working on this record. And it's just really missing you. And oh. so can we write something? I'm like, of course we can. I go, I don't know what I have left because I have pretty much spewed out. I have vomited like all these ideas. And so I don't know what I have to bring, but I'll try to bring mm -hmm. something. I'm trying to think of ideas for her and I got nothing. She had moved to New York and was spending a lot of time there. And she said, come out to New York and let's just like give it a try. If nothing happens, I think I have a whole record. Headed to the airport is like pouring rain. Hop on the plane, soaking wet. And I am sitting there going, I don't have anything for her. I didn't have anything to record on. I'm on this flight. I'm thinking about my situation. Okay, well, you're bringing nothing. You're basically going to New York. What am I going to do? It's sunny there. I'm going to get some sun in New York. Thinking, That's kind of interesting. I'm going to get some sun. But New York isn't what you think about that. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm soaking wet in my plane seat going to New York to soak up the sun. And then I started thinking like, Beach Boys and all this harmonizing in my mind. And I come up with this melody and I come up with a chorus for Soak Up the Sun. I'm not a trained musician. I don't really know how to write anything down. So I had to keep it in my mind for like wow. five hours. I'm doing everything to keep it there. I'm going over it, write it on. I had a notebook and I just wrote some lyrics and stuff. Mostly the chorus. Didn't really have any substantial verse things, but I thought, okay, I've got a hook, I think. The flight attendant comes, and right as I'm about ready to, like, really dial in what that chorus is, she's asking me if I want anything to drink, and I do go, don't talk. Don't say anything, please. No, I don't want anything. And I'm not, like, an asshole type of person. Yeah. That's, like, the last, like, I'm always friendly to everybody. You needed to keep thing. it in your brain, though. But I'm like, I've got something good here, and I don't want to lose it. Unless um, it was cooking sherry, then you might have said was, yes. Yeah, exactly. Please, maybe I, maybe it would have helped me. But I had to carry this thing for five sure. hours, land, get a ride into town, go to Cheryl's house, and hey, big hug. Okay, well, yeah. What do you have any ideas? Blurted it. Well, I have a chorus idea. I think it's a chorus. In my mind, it is. Play it for me. Well, of course, I don't know how the chords go. Sure. I know what the melody is. And she hands me guitar. I'm hunting around on the E string looking for... you oh, never played it yet. It's so just in your head. I've got the melody. You know, I'm gonna soak up the sun. And I just started playing this thing. And I finally, like, okay, yeah, it's an E. All right, I play it, and she's sitting there, and she goes like, I don't know. It kind of sounds like something my brother might like. And I was like, oh, okay, that's the kiss of death. Yeah. 
I took it as like, okay, yeah, this is a bust. Let's try something else. So I thought like, okay, I'll just start jamming on something else. She goes like, oh my God, I can't get that out of my head. Let's work on it. Let's get at least get some verses. Do you have any verse ideas or anything like that? Maybe this is a song that's about a disgruntled teen or whatever. It was just a random like idea. And so we started doing that. What it ended up being was from the point of view of Cheryl when she was a teenager. And so we just started throwing all these images and stuff. She mainly came up with a good majority of the verses and stuff as a collaborator. Like, hey, what do you think of this? What if you change that word to this? Or what does this feel like? She's shooting out these ideas. And I'm either, that's really good, or how about this one? So we really combed it together and got it going. Once again, it's kind of like that sort of chocolate and peanut butter. Yeah, you guys have it's it. like I had that thing. It's kind of unexplainable. And I've never had that with really anybody else. I've written great songs sure. with other artists and have felt the connection to them. But not like that, though. We were so excited about this song. So why doesn't she like performing it? If you read the lyrics, it's not about being on a beach. No. And a lot of people think it is. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think she doesn't like about it. It's not like Jimmy Buffett, Margaritaville. It's not really. But I would say melodically, though, it has a very happy feel to it. It does. It's very Beach Boy. In my mind, it was always like I wanted to have these soaring harmonies and all that stuff. And because Cheryl is such a good singer, especially having been a backup singer for Michael Jackson. Which is crazy. Which is crazy. That's the best education. You couldn't pay to get that education. No. Such a tweaker when it comes to the perfect harmonies. And Don Henley, no slouch in the harmony department either, or melody. So she learned from two of the greatest in that world. With those gifts, her starting off as a backup singer and not a lead singer, she developed into a great lead singer, and she can do these insane harmonies. That's very hard to be able to do both and do both very well. Yeah. I mean, really, once we have a song written, I'm going, man, I can hardly wait to hear what she is going to sing and then we also sing a lot of harmony stuff just as we're writing stuff and i'll harmonize with her the very last song that we wrote and recorded together ended up getting a grammy nod it's called forever and we wrote it that way with just the two of us over a much smaller coffee table she was on one side and i was on the other and Mm -hmm. we put a mic on our guitars and then each had a vocal mic and we sang the song down together with these harmonies. In fact, I wish I had brought the work tape that we had. It's just an iPhone recording. And it's like the one and only time that we have done a work tape where we nailed it. It's usually one of us off or something not working on those. But we like, okay, we know when we do it for real. Well, uh-huh. we had done such a great job on the work tape that when we went in and I produced the track, did all this stuff. When we were done with the recording, we were listening to it. We're like, something just not right. It doesn't have the spirit of, it sounds too big. 
it needed to sound more intimate. We listened to our little work tape. That's, That's it. It's supposed to be that. And how can we get that? Well, let's record it with us live in the room. Imagine doing that. Wilco's been doing it for years, but we've finally like, okay, yeah, maybe there's something to that. And so we ended up like just, you know, with it bleeding and my vocals in it and all that stuff. So what you hear on that recording is pretty much a live thing. Maybe we fixed, okay, let's punch sure. it up. Jeff, you're like so sharp on that or whatever. Let's just, well, so we go back and we punch in that one little spot and get it locked in. And there's no tuning or anything like that. Wow. Nothing. That's incredible. It's, yeah. We got beat out by Bonnie Raitt for the Grammy, but I didn't even care at that point. It, it's the first time that I was ever nominated for a Grammy. Because the Grammys finally this year have a category that recognizes songwriters. Mm. Can you believe that they have never had? That it took this long? It took this long. I don't consider myself a great songwriter. I think I'm a good songwriter. Mm -hmm. And for, what's funny about that is obviously the Grammys are what is recognizing music. And it all starts with a song. Yeah. So to not have a selection there for the songwriter is pretty incredible that it took, not quite incredible in a good way, by the way, that it took that long. Yeah. That was a triumph just on its own. When it comes to the Grammys and stuff like that, yeah, it's an honor. I know a lot of people that should have been nominated for Grammys that haven't. Mm -hmm. And how did I get so lucky to have that? Because I don't think that really completely defines, no. you know, who you are as an artist. There's a lot of people never got a Grammy and have been the most influential. There's so many different Agreed. bands and artists that should have gotten the accolades that didn't. But does that really matter? It's like, no, they left a long impression that has lasted forever. 100%. So you are in Nashville now. What brought you to Nashville? I've been here about eight years, been in L.A. for quite a long time. And I'd been invited to come out here and write with people and all that. Up until a while ago, I mostly just wrote with Cheryl and I started working on other people's records, mm -hmm. writing with them and writing with people that mostly write their own music. So every time I'd come out here, I would see more of my L.A. friends here than when I was in L.A. The reason I moved is I felt like the communal thing that the L.A. scene had, at least in the artist and recording community, was this sort of sharing type of thing that had kind of disappeared and the creativity mm -hmm. and everything became more insular and this is my project. Again. I would agree. You're like kind of covering up your homework or whatever and not letting anybody in. I'm doing it all myself and all that. That communal thing kind of disappeared in L.A. Now, maybe it still exists in my world of the L.A. world. Yes. I felt like Everybody was going other places and doing other things. Every time I came to Nashville, I'd write with somebody and like, you really need to write with my friend too. You guys should get together. Or you... I love that. Like, hey, I had such a great time, man. I know somebody, you would kill it with this person. Spirited, not in a selfish way, wanting to share the experience of getting together with different people. Yeah. I'm not really like a country guy. I like country music, 
But I love all music. So to be brought into some country circles has been really fun for me. And you find even within that, they just love music mm-hmm. and they love people and or they like creating. And so I feel like, yeah, I will get in writing with somebody like Brandy Clark, who really is a sweet person. And we're in different worlds, but at the same token, we're kind of in the same world. Mm-hmm. And so we found this connection. We've written songs together, and that's kind of given me more of an all-encompassing experience. I found it interesting with his background with Northern California and San Francisco and rock and pop as to why he's in Nashville now. But it makes sense because music in itself has evolved so much. Genres have evolved could be argued genres are slowly going away and we're almost going to a one genre platform and Nashville is kind of where it is. Nashville isn't just for country music even though I know now he's working with Sarah Evans, Brandy Clark. I know there are a few other artists that he's very active with but music is really made here and it's made for everybody and because we are kind of shifting and I was explaining to him how I thought Cheryl Crow's songs that he's co-written with her would be considered country today. Genres just being blended now. The lines are so blurred. You really don't hear a lot of rock stations anymore, rap stations or R&B. Those other ones will probably still exist in other markets, but for the most part, you hear pop and country. And country music is now trying to draw the line now. You see it with artists such as Lainey Wilson, Luke Combs, Zach Bryan, trying to not have the line as blurred. But at the end of the day, we have really evolved as a genre so much so that a lot of the times people can't tell the difference. It's interesting to see the evolution of pop and country. And it makes sense that maybe a lot of pop writers and producers in the 90s and early 2000s would now move to Nashville because what they were doing then is what we're doing now in country. So I believe Jeff is going to bring a wonderful perspective and talents to this town because he's already doing and was doing what so many are trying to accomplish here today. The way music has shifted and genres have shifted, a lot of what maybe you were writing with Cheryl then really is how people are writing country music today. It might have been rock and pop then, but today... The way even pop has shifted and now country has shifted, I think you could hear if it makes you happy or soak up the sun on country radio today. And I don't think anyone would blink an eye. No, the umbrella is much broader than it was. And it does encompass many more genres. And a lot of new artists or young artists, they're mishmashing lots of different styles and genres together to create their own thing. That's what music really should be about. Collaborative. Collaborative, expanding, being inspired and growing from maybe what started off as a traditional thing on the back porch ends up getting matched up with different grooves or something like that. It's really wonderful that that's happening. And Cheryl put out a a country record. I remember calling me up and saying like, hey. Jeffrey, I'm going to do a country record, and it's going to be all Nashville people, and it's going to be all Nashville writers and all that. I hope you don't mind. And I'm like, no, whatever you want to do. 
go for it. If that's something that you feel like you need to do and want to do as your friend, I am all about that. I ended up writing a couple songs on when I got the single. You guys just can't get away from each other. Yeah, exactly. Has there been a time in your career thus far where you have felt like you've wanted to quit or give up? Yeah, definitely. I thought the end of my career was after my band got dropped Mm. from MCA. Before I met Cheryl, I was just like, okay, I ended up getting a gig playing with Tears for Fears, which was pretty fun too. But once that was over and I was back to being on my own and not having really any projects or any work, I was thinking, maybe I've taken this as far as it could go. Wow. You had yeah. no idea what was around the bed. I had no bed. idea. In fact, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do my solo record and be done with it. And that was going to be my sort of farewell to music or whatever. Even if I wasn't doing it professionally, I would still be doing it. But I felt like at that point, it's kind of over. And then I meet Cheryl and it just began all over again. <laughs> when a door closes, something else always yeah. opens. Something else is there and you're available for it or you're not, or you go somewhere else and venture off into something different. What song would you say that you've written or co-written changed your life the most? I think it still comes down if it makes you happy okay. because that was really like, I think that my first. How often do you still hear it? I hear it all the time. Yeah. I'm surprised. Like I'll go into like Whole Foods and hear it. And I said, one time my wife was like, oh, there's probably somebody (laughs) that recognizes you and that are queuing it up so that you'll (laughs) buy more groceries or something. And I'm like, yeah, I wish that was true, but. I don't think it is, but yeah, it's so funny when you hear, I hear favorite mistake all the time when I go into Trader Joe's or something. Mm -hmm. I was like, all right, they're still playing that. So it's a good feeling and one that you can never take for granted that it's kind of carried on. It sure has. Throughout movies and TV, I hear a lot of those songs still. And so the relevancy has continued. It didn't slow down. I think it stayed relatively the same. Yeah, it's held up pretty good. It's like an old Schwinn bicycle. It still works and it does what it's supposed to do. So it's nice when other generations can pick it up. I do a lot of writing these days with new artists and they're always like, oh man. What are you working on right now? Actually, I am doing my very first country record. Really? Cheryl's record aside. I was put together with this country singer artist, Sarah Evans. We were writing the song with this great lyricist named Melissa Fuller. And we got together through some publishing people that I really respect and love. This woman named Roxy King. And she's like, you need to write with Sarah. I really think it'd be great. We got together And a lot of times when you write, if you don't know somebody, there's so that get to know you, get to know me first hour Mm -hmm. of talking about who you are, where you came from, all that stuff. And then you also, you start talking about what's on your mind or what's been going on or whatever. And that can kind of lead to like, okay, yeah, let's write about that. Or some crazy thing somebody said at Trader Joe's or whatever, Mm -hmm. write that down. Oh, that sounds like it could be a song or anything really. And she was very open and talking about relationships and she had had 
some troubles and this and that and trying to process relationships and all that. Everybody's been through that. I couldn't get over how open she was to tell some very personal stuff to a complete stranger. But maybe that was what opened her up so that you could talk about those things. We wrote this song last year and I was trying to get her to sing on the, I created like a demo for it and we had like a work tape, but I had done this track and I was trying to get her to sing on it. And she's so busy, always on the road and all that. I can never get her to throw one down and every once in a while. Yeah, I'll come over and throw one down and be like, oh, I don't have any time. And so I was like, that's the way that goes, you know, yeah. it's not to rare living here and doing stuff with artists. A couple of months ago, I get a call from her and I'll throw down a vocal on that song finally. But I really love that song anyways. And I'm pretty sure I want to record that on my record. But let's get together and have some lunch. And so I meet up with her and she said, I want you to produce my next record. Wow. And I'll tell you why. And it's because when I got together to write with you, I mean, I'm glad that we wrote this great song together, but I just felt like you're somebody I really relate to and can make the kind of record that I want to make. And so I'm asking you to produce my record. So that's amazing. We're writing songs for the record. We're taking a few outside songs. Like that's a lot of country artists do that. Absolutely. So you get the Hillary Lindsay's and the Natalie Hemby and those type of people. There's a long list of names. It's like going shopping at the best supermarket or whatever. What I've been trying to do is get as many original songs from her for this record as I can, rather than taking a bunch of outside songs. You could probably limit it to a couple. Sure. I think Daniel Tashin wrote this one song that I really like that I'm hoping we'll record. But we've mostly written all these songs. Ashley Monroe is really oh, incredible. Really wonderful. And she clicked with Sarah. So we, I'm just trying to facilitate those things. And What's your favorite part of the music industry from playing to writing to producing? The writing part of it is fascinating because you don't know what it's going to be. But it's also the hardest work, really, once you try to get something to really work. And I feel like when you write a song, it's still not completely written that you can always tweak it before you write it and get it. Maybe stand back from it and go, well, I think I can make this line a little better. Or, yeah, that. Gosh, that second verse is so good. Maybe can we beat the first one? And you just keep combing it until Mm -hmm. you get there. I love that part of it. It's fascinating to me. Sometimes it's a lot of work and doesn't work out. So maybe that part of it. But when it comes down to it, I just love recording songs and trying different parts and seeing what kind of combinations of things you can do. So that is the really creative part for me doing the recording sure whether i'm producing it or not it doesn't matter to me i love producing i think it's fun sometimes other people are more appropriate to produce something than i am and then other times i'm really the one that should be producing it's a unique it. relationship i think for everybody yeah. i don't have an ego when it comes to that stuff i don't feel like oh i'm not producing this i don't really have that control issue or something some people really need to be in control I like just being able to be 
a conduit of sort, working with artists and trying to get their ideas working so that they feel attached to that song and they go out and perform it and feel a real true connection to that song, you know. Because you've experienced already so much commercial success in your career, is that something you still want more of? (laughs) I wouldn't say no, right? Does it suck when it's successful? But that's not like the only reason when you look at it business-wise, it's very challenging. It's hard to get that. Yeah. And until they can figure out how to compensate writers with better royalty rate, which is like a real, that's something that's bothered me per play 0.008 cents a play on streaming. I just think there's too many greedy people in there. I think there could be a better balance. Even if it was like a royalty of one cent, it would completely change the whole business part for everybody. For young up-and-comers, they don't have to rely on just selling T-shirts and vinyl, which is a great thing. I'm glad that we have that and young artists have that. But it just feels like, once again, because all of us creatives are not really business-oriented. We're Mm creative-oriented. And a lot of people take advantage of that, maybe a, to a degree. It's a naivete, but it's a wonderful thing if you can do it. And if you can't make any money doing it, creating music or just playing music should be a nice kind of therapy for you mm-hmm. as well. So there's a lot of different benefits other than just getting a success success or whatever. So In an ever-changing industry, how do you keep the momentum? I listen a lot. I like to hear what my teenager son is listening to. I'm not one of the parents that like, okay, you're going to start off with the blues. Now you're going to go. I never tell him. The musical journey is your own journey. He listens to whatever he likes. And he has some pretty good tastes. I mean, he listens to a lot of hip hop. He was born in LA, so he listens to a lot of that stuff. It's not big on pop music so much, and even though his girlfriend really is into like K-pop and all that stuff. Okay, but he'll listen to like electronic music. He'll listen to hardcore punk. He'll play me something, and I'm like, "Yeah, I saw them play a long time ago." He's like, "No way, really!" And he just discovers all this music. That's one way for me to get re-inspired by hearing stuff that people are putting out. Now and there's some really amazing artists. What's your favorite thing you're hearing right now? Okay, and this is way more poppier than I would ever admit. That's okay. But I do really kind of like that Olivia Rodrigo record. I didn't want to like it. There is really some unique elements to it, though. Yeah, I was like, okay, you are really going for it, and you're not afraid. You hear her voice. Wow, that's instantly recognizable. Doesn't sound like anybody else I know. I would agree. And lyrically, she's really tapping into her soul and speaking without censoring herself. And it's catchy. That's not what I listen to, but that is something that I just have heard. Uh, Driver's License and Vampire and all those. I was like, gosh, guilty pleasure. I don't want to like it. Yeah. I do like it. Yeah. (laughs) What would you say is something that you haven't accomplished yet that you just desperately would like to accomplish? 
I would like to be able to do an opera. Oh. Yeah. I love opera. I got together with this really eccentric friend of mine years ago that lived in Malibu. And he is an opera fanatic. He's this like really crazy, eccentric artist himself. He's a really great singer. He does some music still, but not like he used to. But you go over to his house and there's opera blaring. And we sat down one time and just drank a lot of coffee and we're like, let's do something together. And so he's like, I had this one recording of uh, Magic Flute that is incredible. And that's like the song that is like one of opera's big hit in the opera world and probably most played, performed. And there's this long intro. It's like this long buildup and it's just over two chords. We took this intro of like eight bars and made a loop from this record. It's totally illegal. We'd have to like pay Cleveland Orchestra or whatever for the performing rights. But we thought, okay, let's write a song on that. We wrote the song. I think it's called Coulda Used More Love. Okay. And it's about a bully coming to grips with his life and all that stuff. And it never got released. But I was thinking like, how oh, can you imagine like writing a bunch of songs and then having an orchestra and then these insane singers doing this stuff, you know? I don't know if it'll ever happen. <laughs> and just recently I played this benefit and there was this woman in attendance that came up and said, Hey, you know, I loved stuff you've done with Cheryl so much. And I'm an opera singer. And I wish opera could branch out and do more newer things. And I told her about this quasi ripoff of Magic Fluid. And she was like, oh, my God, the opera world needs needs it. Like, oh, we'll just put it out here now. You could be the one to do it. You never know. It's good to have something to shoot for, I think. This show is all about the songwriter. My whole dream was to kind of give the microphone back to the songwriter because I don't think there is enough of their take on things. But what I have noticed and what you said with the streaming situation, and how do you think we could help the songwriting community? That's a tough question. I think maybe by supporting your favorite artists or music in general, maybe buy more vinyl is one way. I don't know that the royalty thing can really change unless you go to Congress or maybe the record labels have sold us all out. And I wish they could make some amends to that or try to change what the rates are. It seems like it would be such an easy thing to sit down and work out with streaming companies. I think Spotify tried to do that. I don't know. I agree, but it feels almost like they're pushing the songwriter out. And, yeah. And at the end of the day, we say it all starts with a song. And it'd be kind of really silly and really dumb to push the personnel that is kind of where it starts. Yeah. Really, we're all looking to have a fair stake in it 100%. as well, since we're the ones that are doing most. A lot of the legwork there. But, and that's all you could hope for. I probably should get involved more with it. I have had a lot of conversations with people. I've signed petitions and have done what I can for the limited amount of time 
Sure. But I think as far as like fans maybe talking more about it, I don't know what that would lead to, but maybe more discussions or at least an understanding of how it works, which it's still very gray area for most people, understanding what royalties are and how important they are to the survival of people doing this professionally. So, and especially for the younger generation, I mean, they really have big hurdles Mm -hmm. and much more, I feel like today. Yeah. I was lucky that the time period that I was in, I don't want to say it was the heyday or the golden age, but in some ways it was. The digital age has had so many benefits in terms of accessibility to information and all that. But what I found it has done is it's really taken away, you know, you go to a restaurant, you pay a lot of money to have a meal, yet you're still asked to take some of the burden of the work, taking a a QR shot to get your menu. Can't somebody just hand me a menu? That's pretty old school of me. No, but I think it's part of an experience, too. But it's like, gosh, I can't get the Wi-Fi on my phone. I'm trying to get this. Now I can't even see what I want to eat. It's inconvenient. You go to the grocery store. Now you're checking yourself out. (laughs) Yeah, maybe it's faster and all that stuff. But you're working and not getting paid for it. And you're paying for it, too. And there are some people who are losing jobs because of it. That's a key statement right there. Losing jobs, losing people. Human connection. Human connection. In San Francisco, they have this thing called Cruise. All these driverless cars that are driving around. It sounds cool. Yeah, I get in a car, but I don't know if I want to get in a car without a driver. No way. And I don't know about you, but I kind of enjoy a little bit of human air. Yeah. I took uh, an Uber down here and I had this great conversation with this woman that was driving me and I didn't know her or anything like that. And that is something you're not going to have in a cruise car or whatever. Those are the priceless moments. (laughs) Yeah. Losing the human element. There's so much talk about AI and all that. With songwriting, too. With songwriting. It's like, oh, we can write the next Strawberry Fields or whatever. But where's the story behind the song? Where's no humanity behind it. And that's an important ingredient with music. Maybe it turns into a tool for somebody to use to be able to musically put stuff together, which I'm not opposed to that part of it, but I haven't really come to grips with like, well, then there's no need for any of us to be sitting down and having these experiences that spread out into the world. I think that's important. I could probably handle scanning my groceries, but I don't know about the music part of it. Yeah. Well, lastly, Jeff, I always ask every guest, how do you want to be remembered? As a loving person, a good friend, good dad, somebody that brought some happiness to people. Probably that. Thank you so much for being on What's Mine is Yours. Thank you. Because it all starts with a song and a songwriter. Hey, thanks for listening to What's Mine is Yours, the podcast with Tiffany Woods. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can stay updated with all things What's Mine is Yours by visiting WMIYpodcast.com or following me on socials at Tiffany Woys and the podcast at WMIYpodcast. 
please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. We really appreciate it. Recorded in Nashville, Tennessee. Produced in Los Angeles, California. Presented by Tiffany Woys in conjunction with Roundhouse Entertainment. Executive producers Tiffany Woys and The Ed Hill. Original music from Robert Shavers and Kiefer Thompson. Recorded and engineered by Robert Shavers. You can check out my music on all streaming services and a special playlist we've created for each episode with songs written by each guest only on Spotify. Thanks for listening to What's Mine is Yours.